It was 1220, the year of the dragon, when Genghis Khan finally entered a city. For his entire life up to that point, he had spent his nights in a traditional Mongolian tent, a gare. He was so disgusted by agricultural civilization that he always declined to even enter the cities that he conquered. But on this occasion, he wanted to make a point. The city was called Bukhara, and it was a part of the Khwarezm Empire. Genghis Khan had sent a trade caravan to the Khwarezm, packed to the gills with gold, spices, silks, and more. The Khwarezm had killed his merchants and taken all the treasure for themselves. But Genghis Khan was the most powerful man in the world. Surely, he thought, no one would be stupid enough to so brazenly defy him. This must be some sort of mistake. So he subsequently sent a diplomatic envoy to assess the situation. And these people had the audacity to murder his diplomat and mutilate the diplomat's companions. The Khwarezm had felt themselves safe from Genghis Khan because they lived on the far side of an impassable obstacle, the Kizil Kum, the Red Desert. Because of this barrier, Genghis Khan would be forced to march many thousands of miles around the desert through well-traveled and well-fortified trade routes. Only he hadn't done that. Genghis Khan had appeared in Khwarezm territory like some sort of phantom. One minute he wasn't there, and the next he was, surrounded by a massive army of not only Mongolian horse archers, but Chinese siege engineers. He had done the impossible, and with careful planning and night marches, had made his way across the supposedly impassable Red Desert. Once in Khwarezm territory, Genghis Khan was deliberate, almost leisurely, about attacking Bukhara. He first ambled about the surrounding territory, attacking smaller towns and villages in a predictable pattern. They would attack the village and turn everyone out of their houses. Then they would go through looking for specific skills and attributes. Any skilled craftsman who could help in an upcoming siege would be conscripted into the army. Then some of the more robust peasants were taken as slaves. Then the town was burned to the ground, sending the rest of the population fleeing toward the larger city of Bukhara. The city, now bursting at the seams with peasants from the surrounding countryside, would run out of supplies much faster than it had anticipated. And the refugees spread stories that horrified the city's residents to despair. With the city on the brink of hysteria, Genghis Khan offered them two options, surrender and receive lenient treatment, or fight and be utterly destroyed. Bukhara's defenders thought that the local citizens would surely betray them and capitulate to the Mongols. So they decided to retreat from the city before it was too late. But little did they know, it was already too late. Genghis Khan had anticipated this development, and as the defenders left the city, shortly after the city gates were shut behind them, Mongol warriors poured out from the sides of the roads and slaughtered the 20,000 warriors who had fled. The citizens of Bukhara opened the gates to Genghis Khan, but the remaining soldiers, there were only 500 of them, occupied a fortified citadel in the heart of the city. And so now, Genghis Khan, for the first time in his life, was entering a city. He was drawn to the mosque. At first he thought it must be a palace, since it was the most ornate and beautiful building in the city. He was soon informed of his error and went to visit it anyway. It was unlike anything he had seen before. He admired it, respected it, but was not overawed by it. Rather, he thought it paled in comparison to his god, Tengri. How could a man-made building compete with the vastness, beauty, and power of the eternal blue sky? Bukhara was the most prominent center of Islamic learning in Central Asia, and Genghis Khan was intent on teaching its scholars a lesson. First, they were made to feed and care for his horses, and then he called them into the mosque and delivered a brief lecture. They could debate theology and proclaim their own righteousness before God as much as they wanted, but the situation seemed clear to him. 
You have committed great sins, he told them. If you had not committed such great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. In the coming days, he turned the full weight of his empire on the fort. Slaves rushed forward to attack the citadel, their bodies helping to fill the moat and form human bridges when they were inevitably killed. Military engineers from across the empire set about to destroy the walls, either digging underneath to weaken them or turning out a menagerie of siege engines to help destroy and overcome them. Those siege engines included ladders, battering rams, catapults and trebuchets, which were launching stones, burning liquid, and exploding devices. They had giant crossbows and wheeled portable towers with retractable ladders. They even had crude early forms of mortars and cannons. For the few days that the citadel held out, its walls were a constant scene of fire and death. As the Persian chronicler Giovanni put it, the defenders were soon drowned in the sea of annihilation. Because the citizens had surrendered, they did not suffer as much as many other cities. Still, 20,000 soldiers were dead, as well as a few thousand slaves from the surrounding countryside who the Mongols had pressed into service. And lenient treatment wasn't exactly a picnic. They were spared death, torture, and rape, but the Mongols still systematically dismantled the city and looted it of every possession that could be moved. The citizens of Bukhara were lucky to be alive, but they had nothing other than their lives. Genghis Khan soon left Bukhara behind with its smoldering citadel. He had captured many other cities like it, and before the end of his life, he would capture or destroy many more. For the defenders of Bukhara, the punishment of God was indeed upon them. But for Genghis Khan, it was just another day. And now, he marched towards a new city, and who knew what fresh terrors would await it. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson, and welcome to part two on the life of Genghis Khan. In terms of where we are at in the story, the man known as Temujin has united all of the Mongol tribes and taken on the name slash title of Genghis Khan. And so in this episode, we're going to dive a little bit more into things that you can learn from him and see how he establishes this big empire. And I started out this episode with that first story because I actually sort of wanted to warn against the lesson that you could take from it. I like that phrase Genghis Khan used. He said, I am the punishment of God. And that is how he wanted his enemies to see him. He wasn't an enemy. He wasn't an opponent. He was a natural disaster. He was a supernatural force. And he wanted to encourage that thinking because you can't fight against a natural disaster. You can't fight the punishment of God. And I think there is this temptation to believe him, to believe that this is correct. I think some people see the Mongol horse archer as like a cheat code. And you can see why their strategy was often to ride up, shoot at the enemy, and then retreat before the enemy could retaliate. And that does kind of seem like a cheat code. I can hit you, you can't hit me. And the Mongol invasion was so rapid and so extensive. You know, it went from the Pacific Ocean to the Black Sea and beyond, uh, well into almost Central Europe. But when you look at the actual story, it's much more complicated. 
The Mongols suffered plenty of defeats and setbacks. There were plenty of places that they couldn't go, nations that they wanted to conquer that they just couldn't get to, obstacles that offered serious challenges. I guess what I'm getting at is I think sometimes people actually diminish the brilliance of Genghis Khan's leadership because they think that he was this supernatural force or he had this cheat code. And he didn't. It only looked like he did because he was such a brilliant leader and strategist. But what he did, he did through hard work, through brilliant strategy, and through excellent leadership. So today we're going to look at some of those strategies, the way that he did the things that he did. One other thing to announce before we get started, next week I'm going to be releasing an end notes episode for this Genghis Khan series, but it will only be available to paid subscribers. So How to Take Over the World is launching a subscription in the future. All of my end notes episodes will be available to subscribers only. I'll also do some Ask Me Anything episodes where you can ask me questions, and then I'll also have some other occasional mini episodes and other bonus content. There's so much value to be gleaned from the lives of these great leaders, and so many people have been bugging me to go weekly with the podcast. And this is your way to get weekly content. You know, hopefully the money that will come in from this is going to help me be able to focus on this more full time and turn down some other things so I can put out more episodes. It's going to cost $7 a month or $70 per year. So if you're interested, check out next week's episode. I'll put up a little preview, like a 10 minute preview, and then I'll have a link in the show notes that you can click on and sign up if you're interested. By the way, there is also going to be a Caesar tier. It's $3,000 a year. And if you sign up for it, then you can choose a leader from history that you are excited about and I will do a series on them. So that's only if you got some money to throw around and you absolutely love the podcast and you want to join the inner circle, that's the Caesar tier. Anyway, with all that said, let's get into it. Here is part two on the life of Genghis Khan after this quick break. After uniting the Mongol tribes, the first thing that Genghis Khan does is establish the Great Law. It was a single legal code to govern the affairs of the entire empire. It established religious tolerance. Anyone could worship however they saw fit. It established what was essentially a giant lost and found system for lost livestock. It encouraged learning and technological development by exempting doctors, lawyers, teachers, scholars, and religious leaders from taxation. It ordered the adoption of a writing system. Uh, Genghis Khan establishes a vast hostage system where his bodyguard is made up of the best and brightest of the children of the nobility from all over his empire. And he doesn't use so much the threat of execution as the promise of promotion if your family is loyal and you perform capably. He also implements a vast postal service reminiscent of the Pony Express. So he's got all these reforms, but most importantly, his legal code was focused around ending violence in the empire. Violence was ubiquitous on the Mongol steppe. There were always raids and counter raids and petty disputes and little wars, more like gang conflicts. And so that was very disruptive and he wanted to end it. So he outlawed raiding and cattle rustling and many of the things that created intertribal conflict that led to raiding. Things like adultery and rape and, and in anything that could start a war was now outlawed under this new legal code. And this effort to reduce violence is wildly successful. He creates more peace than the Eastern Steppe has ever known. But Genghis Khan was a victim of his own success. They say that war is hell. Well, for Genghis Khan, peace was actually hell. For Mongol warriors, raiding was fun. And it was also a way to climb the ranks and improve your station in life. In the chaos of these raids and counter raids, very capable warriors and leaders could vastly improve their reputation and standard of living by getting more stuff and attracting a following. 
And by eliminating all this violence, he's essentially freezing the social order in place. And predictably, this upsets a lot of people. And so the six years of peace after Temujin becomes Genghis Khan are not peaceful necessarily for him personally. The largest threat comes from a shaman, actually the most famous shaman in the Mongol world. He was called Kokochu or Teb Tengri. And Teb Tengri had been very helpful to Genghis Khan during his rise. He had always prophesied that God, Tengri, favored Genghis Khan and would make him ruler of the entire world. And in return, Genghis Khan made him very wealthy and very powerful. It became an important part of his inner circle. But as Ted Tengri gets more powerful, he becomes jealous of Genghis Khan's family and begins to start conflicts with them. And initially, Genghis Khan actually sides not with his own blood, but with Ted Tengri. He even has his own brother, Kasar, tied up and imprisoned because he clashes with Ted Tengri. But his mother, Holun, talks some sense into him. The secret history of the Mongols tells us that she comes into the tent where Genghis Khan is and he has Kasar tied up there and she unties him. She takes off her shirt and says, have you seen these? These are the breasts that you sucked. And just to like remind him that I'm still your mother <laughs> of, of both of you, by the way. And then she lectures him on the need to stay united with his family, with his brothers specifically. And Genghis Khan relents a little. He frees Kasar. But he goes back on it and actually supports Teb Tengri again in a land dispute with another one of his brothers. It's actually his wife, Borta, who finally turns him against Teb Tengri. She says essentially, and this is very smart reasoning by Borta, she says, if this guy can do this to your brothers while you're living, what do you think that he will do to your sons when you're dead? So Genghis Khan thinks about this and he's like, okay, that's a really good point. So he has Teb Tengri killed and replaces him with a more pliable and less ambitious shaman. Now, during this period of peace, the empire is still growing. He goes to Siberia and is basically able to blackmail the tribes there, their reindeer herders, to join his empire. He says, look, you don't want to be invaded. How about you join up with us? They say, that sounds great. And so, so there's no real actual fighting. He also goes to the Uyghurs, who are closer to China, and forms an alliance there as well. But despite these additions, the men are just pained by this inability to come up in the world through martial prowess. Genghis Khan realizes that plots and insurrections, like what he suffered from Teb Tengri, are going to accompany him as long as he keeps the empire at peace. And so in 1209, he takes his first steps towards firing up his war machine. It starts with an invasion of the Western Shia, a kingdom on the edge of the Chinese world certainly more Chinese and less steppy than the Uyghurs, or obviously more so than the Mongols, but not quite as settled or Chinese as some other kingdoms that are like more properly China. This is truly a frontier kingdom, kind of half Chinese, half steppe. Genghis Khan personally leads the invasion, which is at first very successful, but then the Mongols suffer a defeat, a reversal. And this creates a stalemate the two armies facing off against each other. Uh, the thing that breaks the stalemate is one of the most famous Mongol strategies, and that is the false retreat. The Mongols struggled against a well-defended opponent, and they preferred not to fight up close. So if you as their opponent could just hunker down and put your shields up, they're going to have trouble getting to you. And so the Mongols had a perfect strategy to remedy this. They would come charging up, fire some arrows at you, get you all irritated and mad until you counterattacked. And then as soon as you did, as soon as you counterattacked, they would run away in full terror. 
complete rout, totally panicked. Like they were fleeing for their lives. They even recruited men who were particularly good actors to serve in key positions so that they would really sell that they had been defeated and were afraid and were truly running away. And they were so good at this, so convincing that the enemies basically always took the bait. So they would go chasing after the retreating Mongols. And then as soon as they were spread out and disorganized and on flat ground that was favorable to the Mongols, the Mongol horse archers would turn around and attack. And this tactic was devastating. This is one of the first times it is used by Genghis Khan and he routes the Shia army, completely destroys them. And then he besieges their capital. And at this point, they don't have siege engineers, the Mongols don't, and they don't really know how to conduct a siege. So at first, the siege isn't going anywhere. They're just like waiting on the outside of the city. So then they try to divert the Yellow River to flood the city, this, this Shia capital. And at first, this appears to be going well. But then the dam that is used to divert the river breaks and the river floods the Mongol encampment instead with the Shia army destroyed. But the Mongols also in a precarious situation, a deal is reached. The Shia will provide tribute to the Mongols and submit to them, even give Genghis Khan a princess for a wife. And the Mongols agree to remove their forces from the area. For Genghis Khan, it was his first modest steps into the invasion of the civilized world. It provided opportunities for distinction for his men. It provided a massive influx of wealth into his empire because this treaty stipulated that a lot of treasure would go to the Mongols. And it showed both that he could have success in an invasion like this, but also that he needed to improve his ability to conduct sieges if he were to be successful in the future. Genghis Khan was then looking for new territory to invade when he received what must have seemed to him a gift from heaven. In 1210, he received a delegation from the Jin dynasty. If the Shia were semi-Chinese, the Jin definitely had a Chinese kingdom. They themselves were not Chinese, at least not originally. Their origins were as steppe invaders, but the territory they had conquered was solidly in China. It included Manchuria and much of what is now northern and western China. And this delegation proclaimed to Genghis Khan that there was a new golden Khan, a new leader of the Jin. And previously, Ong Khan, if you remember that guy, he was like a surrogate father to Genghis Khan, to Temujin. And Ong Khan had paid tribute to the Jin previously. And so they come to him and they figure, all right, well, the last guy paid us tribute. You're the new guy who's in control of the same territory. So presumably you will now pay us tribute too. And so they tell him, all right, listen, uh, Genghis Khan, whoever you are, bow down, submit to your new emperor and provide us some tribute. And he has no idea what a big mistake he's making. Instead, Genghis Khan turns to the south towards Jin territory, spits, and then turns around and storms off on his horse, leaving them in a cloud of dust. And this is a declaration of war. And the Jin think this is absolutely crazy. Yes, he's the king of the Mongolian steppe, but as far as they're concerned, he's still just a steppe barbarian. And they are genuine Chinese monarchs with this vast kingdom and tons of resources at their disposal. In fact, after the Jin emperor hears of Genghis Khan's response, uh, he says to him, quote, our empire is like the sea. Yours is a handful of sand. How can we fear you? Well, they would soon find out how. And technically speaking, 
you can see why the Golden Khan felt so confident. They had under their control more than 600,000 soldiers, an army eight times larger than that of Genghis Khan's. And so (laughs) under those circumstances, you would feel pretty confident, right? Well, of course, there are warriors and then there are warriors. Um, The Mongol steppe warriors are much better than your average infantryman from a Chinese army. So there is that. But then there's also Genghis Khan's incredible public relations and strategy. So the first thing that he does is he plays upon existing divisions inside the Jin kingdom, and he recruits some of the troops who had an axe to grind with their Jin overlords over to his side. He says, hey, look what I've done so far. I've united all these steppe people. I've defeated all these other kingdoms. I keep being victorious. And so there are people that the Jin have conquered who are on the outskirts of their kingdom and are kind of Mongolian-ish, right? They're kind of steppish. And so Genghis Khan comes to these people and says, why don't you side with us? And they go, oh, yeah, okay, great. And so they defect from the Jin. And then he splits his army and quickly marches through Jin territory, taking vital mountain passes and destroying Jin croplands. And this is something that Genghis Khan frequently did. It reminds me a lot of Napoleon. Napoleon would also do this. He would divide his army so that they could march quickly and live off the land, right? So these Napoleonic troops are going through and they are just eating in the local villages, kind of raiding fields and orchards where they find them to feed themselves. But you can't do that with a massive 100,000 person army. So he would split up his army so they could live off the land and march quickly, not wait for supply chains, and then only bring them together when it was time for a battle at the point of conflict. And so Genghis Khan does the exact same thing, except he doesn't even have to live off the land in the traditional way because all their horses were females. And so they could milk their horses. So all they need is grassland. So he splits up his army so that they don't overfeed and and use up all the grassland in any one area. Um, So he splits up his army where the horses can feed and provide milk for the soldiers. And then when there is a big conflict, uh, his men can move so fast that he brings them together. Um, to to have stronger numbers in a big battle. In this particular instance, actually, they move so quickly, they actually don't ever even have to come together. Uh, They defeat the Jinn in a series of small battles. The Jinn are much more numerous, but they're slow. Um, They were a fairly typical army of the time, which meant they had a lot of infantry, a lot of men who had to march. They had long supply chains that would bring them food and other supplies. And the Mongols, on the other hand, were just a very different army. They were, first of all, basically all cavalry. And so they could move very quickly. And not only was it made exclusively of cavalry, but each man had three horses with him. So if one horse was tired, he could mount the next one and keep going. And each man was almost unbelievably self-sufficient. He had warm clothes, a knife and hatchet for cutting, a lasso for catching animals or tying up prisoners, a sewing kit for mending his own clothes, strips of dried meat, 10 pounds of dried milk paste, some additional dried curd, And like I said, they could milk their own horses to get even more food. And when really starved for food, Mongol warriors would even cut their horses and drink a little bit of their blood. And now let's say that, you know, these extremely self-sufficient Mongol warriors go through all of this. They run out of all of their food. And let's say it's been more than a month with no new supplies and they don't want to bleed their horses anymore. Well, the Mongol warriors with their protein-rich diets could still go for a couple more days without eating and be in fighting condition. Whereas the Jin infantry, on the other hand, ate almost exclusively rice. They were on a total carb diet. And if they weren't fed for a day or two, 
they quickly became hungry, weak, and sick. And so what you have is each Jin warrior is essentially a cog in a giant machine. And they don't have a ton of value on their own. As long as that machine is working well, they are formidable. But if it breaks down, they're not of much value alone. And the Mongols are the opposite. Each Mongol warrior is essentially an attack helicopter, a world unto himself, capable of independently moving, feeding himself, making decisions, taking prisoners. And so these attack helicopters essentially get loose behind the Great Wall in Jin territory, and they just start messing with this Jin military machine, and it breaks down. So this is how they defeat the Jin, and this is how they would defeat basically all of their opponents when it came to more settled civilizations. So after these initial victories, there are again more defections from the Jin forces. And so Genghis Khan decides, let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's strike at the Jin capital of Zhangdu, which is located where modern day Beijing is. Well, it turns out that they'd actually overreached. They went too far, too fast. Whenever the Mongols went down into settled civilization, they ended up getting ravaged by diseases that tend to come with big cities. And also the further away they got from rolling grasslands, the more difficult it was for them to keep their army supplied for these long sieges. I mentioned, you know, they needed a bunch of grass to keep their horses going. Their horses were not only their transportation, but sort of their ongoing source of food. And so you start to get into more settled areas and you have no grasslands. You have crops, right? You got these big rice fields and big orchards. Those aren't super helpful to feeding horses. So the Mongols are suffering as they are trying to besiege Zhengdu. But luckily, following up on this theme, again, they're able to leverage internal divisions and they're able to use psychology and public relations. So the Jin don't realize how bad their besiegers have it, how much disease is taking their toll. All they see is that they are besieged by this enormous army that they haven't really been able to defeat or slow down. And so some people get nervous, think there's no way they're going to win this. And so because of these internal divisions, um, a, a contender for the throne kills the golden Khan and replaces him. And so this new Khan comes to Genghis Khan and they make a deal, a deal much like the Shia, that they will provide tribute to the Mongols and submit to them as long as the Mongols leave. So they do. They come to this agreement. But subsequently, this new Khan looks at the situation and says, okay, I don't want to beat these guys mercy anymore. Come on. I'm not really going to be, you know, the, the plaything of Genghis Khan. I'm, I'm a big, bad Chinese emperor now. So he decides to move his capital further to the south, away from the Mongols, more than 300 miles to the south, where it will be more easily defensible. And that's obviously a move to create a buffer and protect himself from further Mongol invasions. Well, Genghis Khan is really mad about this. Like, wait, I, I thought you submitted to me. Why are you preparing to fight me again already? So he and the Mongols return almost as soon as they had left. And this time they completely wipe out Zhangdu. Jin forces would fight on for years, but Northern China was now largely conquered by the Mongols. And importantly, Genghis Khan was learning and adapting. He used this conquest to vastly beef up his engineering corps for future sieges. He didn't have the manpower at this point to knock down a big city wall. They only had horse archers, right? And now that he has all of this Chinese territory, he has access to Chinese intellectual capital. And so he's finding people 
who can build catapults, who can build cannons, who can dig under city walls to weaken them so that in the future, he is going to be able to successfully conduct sieges. While departing from Zhangdu after destroying it, he had his men also destroy the agricultural villages and trample and churn up the farmland so that it would turn back into grasslands so that his horses could feed off it if they had to return. And this is an essential feature of Genghis Khan's conquests. It's a disdain for agricultural life. Mongol language made linguistic distinctions between people and animals. You know, your verbs, your adjectives, the words you use changed depending on whether you were talking about people, thinking things, or animals. And the Mongols always used grammar and words associated with animals when they talked about peasants. Genghis Khan never spent a night in a building, like a a standing, actual, solid structure. He slept in a tent, in a gare, every night of his life. And that is how you have to understand a lot of his massacres. He saw it as the culling of cattle in order to make room for real life, pastoral life, a life actually worth living. You know, th- this peasantry to him is like, this is slavery. These people are, are not real people. Uh, that's really how they saw them. And so you continue to see these two hallmarks of Mongol invasions going forward into the future, this disdain for settled agricultural life and this identifying and exploiting internal divisions when they invaded a place. And they would actually use both of these uh, in their next invasion. They invaded a Western Kitai kingdom, often called the Kara Kitai. And these people are basically Uyghurs. And the division that they exploit in this case is that the, the people, the Uyghurs, the locals, were Muslims. But their overlords, their rulers, were Buddhist. And the Buddhist rulers had forbidden their Muslim subjects from religious study, from public worship, or even sounding the call to prayer. And the Mongols did not care about this kind of stuff. They were happy to let people practice whatever religion they wanted to practice. Um, They didn't try and forcibly convert people to Tengrism. And in fact, amongst the Mongol forces, there are plenty of Christians and Buddhists and Muslims. They, They had this sort of universalism of like, yeah, great. And I think it comes from their polytheistic background, right? They're used to accepting and incorporating lots of different gods. So they're like, cool, Jesus, he sounds like a very cool God. Muhammad seems like a, a great prophet to us. Buddha, yeah, great, bring it on. And so they see this situation, they're like, of course, so we'll, we'll free the Muslims. And so they turn the populace against their own rulers and uh, attract many Muslim warriors to their cause and easily defeat the Kara Kitai. By now, there was a truly massive influx of wealth into the Mongolian Empire. There are stories that so much valuable Chinese silk floods the Mongolian market that they are using it as rope and wrapping paper. But you know how human nature is. That doesn't satisfy the Mongols. It creates even more demand for more wealth. So Genghis Khan, who at this point controls basically the entire eastern half of the Silk Road, turns his eye toward the western half. He's now 60 years old. He's still got the fire in the blood, but at this point in his life, if he can avoid a fight, he rather would. So he decides to start trading with the major Central Asian player that is between him and the Middle East, and that is the Khwarizmid Empire. And the Khwarizm went from modern Afghanistan all the way to the Black Sea. These are the guys from the opening story. So I'll just briefly go over it again. 
He sends a trade delegation. They kill them and take all the goods. There's a good quote from the Persian chronicler Juvani, who writes, quote, The governor's attack not only wiped out a caravan, it laid waste a whole world. So Genghis Khan sends a diplomatic delegation. They attack them as well. So Genghis Khan takes this personally and attacks with multiple armies. He himself leads an army through the desert, the Red Desert, in order to attack them from behind. And this is such a masterstroke that the Khorasmid Empire completely collapses in less than a year. And by the way, there's a good quote when Genghis Khan writes to the people. He says, Commanders, elders, and commonality know that God has given me the empire of the earth from the east to the west. Whoever submits shall be spared, but those who resist shall be destroyed with their wives, children, and dependents. So from that first sentence, we can now see that Genghis Khan believed in a divine destiny to rule the entire world. You can see this in the nature of the letters he writes to new foes. Instead of talking as one ruler to another, he takes a condescending tone, something along the lines of, hey, I see you haven't submitted yet. Uh, Let's correct that little oversight. The destruction of the Khorasm is the most complete of any of his conquests. I mean, complete and total annihilation. And there are some who argue that it basically sent the region into a tailspin from which it still hasn't recovered. Basically, they argue that the reason that places like Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and those countries are still poor to this day is because Genghis Khan laid waste to them so completely. You know, this empire, the Khorasm Empire, was one of the wealthier parts of the world at the time. And that is definitely not how you think of Central Asia today. And I I don't know if I buy this. Um, They still would have suffered greatly economically when the Silk Road was replaced by sea routes in the 1400s. But it still tells you something about the level of destruction that this is considered a valid hypothesis. One plausible death toll puts the total number of people killed in Central Asia from this Mongol invasion at 15 million people. And that's probably too high. You know, there are incentives on both sides to exaggerate a little bit. So on the conquered side, you know, the Khwarezm often inflated the death toll and destruction in order to ask for help from their Muslim brothers in the Middle East. They're trying to drive home what a grave threat this man is. Um, There's a good quote from them. They wrote, this is the greatest catastrophe and the most dire calamity which befell all men generally and Muslims in particular since God Almighty created Adam until now. So you can see this is not measured language. This is them trying to get help. And so they're saying this is the worst thing literally to ever happen. And the Mongols have an incentive to do the same thing. They're like, yeah, we're terrible. We kill everyone, millions and millions, billions. So submit to us, you know, don't, don't try and fight us. So that's why these death tolls get inflated so much. Um, but whichever way you slice it, the death toll was staggering, uh, horrific. And this invasion is horrific, but also impressive. And once again, greatly enhances the wealth of the Mongol empire. But with the empire so powerful and so wealthy at an all-time pinnacle in terms of, of prestige and power, Genghis Khan starts to think about the long-term future of this endeavor. And he starts to think about the succession. Who's going to inherit all of this? And this little decision, who's going to take over the empire, would help to decide history over hundreds of years and over multiple continents. And we'll hear how it went down after this quick break. Genghis Khan had four sons from his first wife, Borta, and all of them were potential heirs. And so he calls all four of them 
back from their various campaigns and invasions to Mongolia to have a meeting to decide the question of the succession. The idea was to split up the empire and give them each a part, but to still have one son function as the great Khan, the ruler of the entire realm. His oldest two sons were at each other's throats over the succession question. They could see this coming down the pipe, and each was trying to jockey for position as the primary inheritor. Jochi was the oldest and a very capable commander and leader. But as you might remember, his parentage was very questionable. He probably was actually not Genghis Khan's biological son. His next oldest son was named Chagatai, and he was also a very capable person. But the problem was that Jochi and Jagatai were in such an intense conflict that whichever one was made Khan would immediately go to war with the other one. Very obvious already. And to give you an idea of how intense this rivalry was, at this meeting to determine the succession, those two break out into a physical fistfight and they start wrestling. So it was very intense between the two of them. So Genghis Khan makes a pretty smart decision, I think. First of all, he gets mad at everyone who questions Jochi's parentage. He says, you're basically calling his mother, my wife, a whore, and thereby calling your own mother a whore. Quote, you all sprang from a single hot womb. If you insult the mother who gave you your life from her heart, if you cause her love for you to freeze up, even if you apologize to her later, the damage is done. And it's interesting in this setting in which they're determining millions of lives, unbelievable amounts of wealth, you know, how this empire is going to be divided up. It's still a family gathering where Genghis Khan is saying, don't you dare insult your mother. And if you do, you know, she's never really going to forgive you. <laughs> and it's just interesting to see that contrast and those both things playing out side by side. I actually think it's a touching bit of sentimentality from Genghis Khan. It shows how much he loved his wife. But so he says, I accept Jochi as my son unquestionably. But I also kind of get it. <laughs> you know, he, you guys might not think he's one of you. So let's compromise. And so what he does try and maintain the long-term stability is Chagatai and Jochi, these, these two that are at each other's throat, are given territories that don't border one another. And the third brother, Ogadai, is given the succession as great Khan. Ogadai was less ambitious. He was friendly. He was a drunkard. He was always drinking alcohol. In fact, um, if you believe the reports, he was drunk at this meeting of the brothers to decide the succession. And so he seemed like a pretty good choice because everyone liked him and no one felt threatened by him. And so all the brothers agree on this, that they'll all take these four kingdoms and Ogadai will get to be the great Khan. And so at the end of this meeting, he also starts giving out his last pieces of advice. He's old, he's still in good health, but for a warrior now in his late 60s, he knows he's not going to live forever. And so this is what he tells his sons. I think this is amazing advice. He says, without the vision of a goal, a man cannot manage his own life, much less the lives of others. It will be easy to forget your vision and purpose once you have fine clothes, fast horses, and beautiful women. In that case, you will be no better than a slave, and you will surely lose everything. Well, in 1226, Genghis Khan returns to China to mop up some of his conquests there. He was an old man now, but he still liked being close to the action. The campaign was proceeding, but slowly, and he thought his presence and veteran leadership could help speed things up. Well, in the winter of 1226, he fell from his horse, injuring himself badly. He grew sick and failed to improve. And then finally, in August of 1227, Genghis Khan died. 
For centuries, rumors have swirled about what actually killed him. There's some really outlandish rumors, some more reasonable. Some said that he was shot by an arrow during a siege, while others attested that he contracted malaria. However he died, he was quickly transported back to Mongolia, where he was buried by his beloved mountain, Burkhan Khaldun, the sacred mountain where he was born and to which he prayed and owed so much good fortune throughout his life. And there are many stories that you can read about the vast fortunes that were buried with him. And it's probable that is true that a, a incredible amount of treasure was buried with Genghis Khan. There are also fantastical rumors about a burial guard of 500 people who were killed by other guards because they knew the burial site. And then those guards were killed by other guards because they knew where they had come from. And so there's this succession of people killing people until for sure no one knows where Genghis Khan was buried. Whatever the truth, it is true that his burial site is known to be somewhere around Burkhan Khaldun, but was a secret then. Uh, the exact location was not known and has eluded adventurers and researchers over the centuries since, in part because the Mongolians themselves continue to revere the sanctity of the site and do everything that they can to protect the site and stop others from finding it, from finding the location of Genghis Khan's burial. I think it's very appropriate. It's larger than life as Genghis Khan was. This secret chamber full of treasure somewhere, but never to be found. So let's talk about the life and legacy of Genghis Khan. He was an incredibly destructive leader, but also an incredibly creative one. He opened up trade routes, established freedom of religion and worship over a large swath of Eurasia, swept aside exorbitant taxes that slowed trade, increased communication, and helped spread technology. This is actually the time when gunpowder and other crucial technologies first made their way from China into Europe and kicked off a mini renaissance. That renaissance was put on hold when the Black Death struck, but it kicked off again almost immediately thereafter in the 1400s. So the conquests of Genghis Khan had quite a few knock-on effects that had global implications. And then, of course, the question of the show. What can we learn from Genghis Khan? The first thing I want to point out is that he was quite religious, quite devout. Hollywood does this thing that drives me crazy. They love to show people in the past, especially charismatic leaders, as always being completely cynical about God or the gods, whether that's Game of Thrones or that show Vikings, like anything from back then. They make them modern people who are cynical about religion and the divine. But these great leaders were genuinely religious. Caesar was a chief priest of Rome before embarking on his political journey. Alexander was scrupulous in his observations of sacrifices and prayers. I would actually say that Steve Jobs represented sort of what I would call peak boomer spirituality. He wasn't a religious guy in an organized sense, but he actually did a lot to popularize this sort of techno Zen Buddhism that is now kind of the default uh, for people in a certain social sphere. It didn't used to be normal for people to meditate and do yoga. And now that is completely normal for a certain set of people, right? And Steve Jobs was, was sort of uh, very religious in, in that sense. Anyway, uh, what I'm trying to get at is I think a part of the reason that all of these great conquerors were religious is because they believed in something bigger than themselves. They can believe in a sense of destiny. In fact, the one great conqueror who you would say was sort of like a Reddit atheist was Napoleon. But Napoleon himself had this immense belief in destiny and that destiny was with him. 
And Genghis Khan really emphasized that. Again, one of the last things he said to his sons was, without the vision of a goal, a man cannot manage his own life, much less the lives of others. So he believed in this destiny, in this great goal. He believed that the all-powerful god Tengri, the vast blue sky, willed him to conquer the whole world and that the sacred mountain Burkhan Khaldun empowered him to do so. And who was going to stand in the way of that? You know, of course he had this vast ambition if he believed that this god was standing behind him. And there is such power in having this ambitious vision and this ambitious self-belief, this incredible, unshakable self-belief. And that is the main thing that I will take away from it. Act as though God, the vast blue sky, Tengri himself, stands behind you. When you have that level of self-belief, you're going to reach for more and accomplish more than you might otherwise even believe possible. Be a man or a woman of destiny. Okay, there's actually so much more to talk about. Uh, This is going to be a pretty beefy EndNotes episode that comes out next week. I'll talk about a few things like if Genghis Khan was a Mongol, why did he have red hair? What happened to his empire after his death? What have modern genetics taught us about Genghis Khan? We're going to talk about the Mongol invasion of Europe, which I believe someone needs to make a horror movie out of. Incredible story. I have to talk about my favorite incident, which is when the Mongols made Buddhists, Christians, and Muslims face off in a competition to determine which religion was correct. So if you want to learn all of that and more, the 10 minute preview will be in your feed next week. And you can just go to the link in the show notes to subscribe and get the full EndNotes episode. So until next time, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World.